Let's take our Bibles to the passage that we read together this morning. As you know, in the reading, we only looked at a number of verses. We did not cover the whole of the text. And this morning, I hope to give us all a kind of a bird's eye view of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. It is a privilege to worship you. It's a privilege to be with your people. It is a great privilege, Lord, to be able for me to open your word, to seek to explain it. And I trust, Lord, it is for everyone here today a privilege to be here, to hear and to study what the scriptures say. We have asked you already to be with us in this time of worship, and we know that you are here. But we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit now to give us insight into this incredible text in 1 Corinthians 7, that it might be applied to our lives in appropriate ways. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I apologize, I came a little late this morning. The reason is I actually arrived here on time, but um, I don't know what happened to you this morning, but when I, I just got back from Mexico yesterday. So when I got outside this morning and realized my car was covered in snow, I turned the car on, I started to you know, brush all the snow off the windshield and so on. And then I got in the car and I drove away and I left my Bible and my notes at home. And it wasn't until I arrived here that I realized what, it, what I had done. So that's what happens when you go to Mexico and come home to a snowstorm. Well, not a storm, but a little bit of snow. So I enjoyed the white sand and now I'm really enjoying the white snow. Yeah. Sure I am. I'm trying to convince myself. So we're continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians. And um, in the last number of weeks, we have moved from the first problem that Paul addresses to the Corinthian believers, the, division, the, the issue of holiness. Sorry, the issue of division. And he deals with this division in the church. And then beginning at chapter 5, right through to chapter 7, he deals now with the problem of holiness, particularly sexual holiness. That is the issue he's dealing with here. In chapter 5, there is a man who is living a very ungodly life in the church. Um, he's engaged in gross sexual immorality. And the Apostle Paul says, this, 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 this cannot abide. This cannot be. And, uh, and he encourages the people to put this man out of the fellowship of the church. And then in chapter 6, he addresses the issue of sexual license. This everything is permissible for me kind of attitude that characterized Corinth and unfortunately even the Corinthian church. And Paul gave a number of reasons why we should not be engaged in sexual immorality and he gave two commands, we're to flee from it and we're to honor God with our bodies. Now, Paul continues to deal with the issue of sexual holiness, but in chapter seven, he comes at this from a very different angle. Um, he addresses in chapter seven, while it's all about sexual purity, he comes at it with a different kind of concern. So I wanna make a number of, of very cursory observations about the passage before we dive into it. First of all, Paul is responding in chapter seven to a letter that the Corinthians wrote to him. Now, not all of the Corinthians did, but some of them in the church in Corinth. Look, look at verse one. Now for the matters you wrote about. He's not saying this is what I'm writing about. He said, there's some matters that you wrote about. You sent a letter to me and you had some questions for me. And Paul is responding to the questions that they asked. So we have to give a little bit of a back, background here. Keep in mind that this church is reacting to the culture in which it lives. Just as we react to the culture in which we live today. And on the one hand, you've got, you've got some of the people in the church who are simply reacting by imbibing the culture in which they live. Everything's permissible for me. That appears to have been a relatively large segment of the church. 
And Paul in chapter 6 is saying, listen, if you, if you imbibe the spirit of the culture, there, there's nothing that makes you as Christians indistinguishable from those who are not. So that's what some are doing. On the other hand, there are those who are absolutely revolted by the culture in which they live. And so now they are advocating that we as Christians move to another extreme, and that extreme is one of what we call asceticism. To be an ascetic means that you withdraw from the world, that you cut yourself off from all worldly pleasure, that you will not engage in any way in any kind of physical or sexual, sensual pleasure whatsoever. And so there's a group in the church now who are imposing on the whole church restrictions in the area of sexuality which are not in accordance with God's word. They're basically saying, you know, give all of this up. There should be no physical or sexual pleasure in life at all. He is urging, or these, this group within the church are urging the whole church to live abstaining completely from sexual relations. Now, you know what often happens, that when someone asks a question of you, whether it's in a letter or, or they're asking you face to face, sometimes they're, really they're not really looking for an answer. They ask you a question, but they're implying a certain thing. We see this in the House of Commons all of the, all of the time. Just, just listen to the opposition ask the government a question in the House of Commons. It's not really a question. They're implying certain things in what they ask. And of course, you don't get any answers anyway, so why ask a question? And so questions were being asked, but they, they, they weren't really sincere in a sense. They weren't really asking questions in order to gain information. Rather, they were asking things of Paul in order to attempt to get Paul to agree with their point of view. They were not representing the interests of the church at large, but rather they were representing their own biases in the questions that they asked. And this is hinted at right here in the opening line of chapter seven. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, and that is in quotes. You see, see, Paul is quoting them. In other words, they were writing to them, writing to Paul saying, you're right, Paul, it, it's good not to have sex, right? They're trying to get Paul on their side. Now, it sounds like a very, very spiritual thing that they say, because on the surface of it, who, who would disagree? If you're a believer in Jesus, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, especially if she's not your wife, of course. So it sounds like a very Christian thing that's being said here, but it's not Christian at all. It's, it's filled with a kind of spiritual pride. It's filled with a false spirituality. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's good for a married man not even to have sexual relations with his wife. It's good for a man to completely abstain from sexual relations, even if he's married. See, that's really what's being said here. Because this group of people in the church saw sex as so revolting and disgusting. So, and it's gonna come out in the passage, they were actually referring to, or speaking to couples in the church who were betrothed to each other, engaged to each other, not to get married. Because you don't want to get married and have sex. Because that'll do away with your holiness. And then they were also encouraging people in the church where one was a believer, a, a married couple, one's a believer and the other isn't, and they're saying to the married person, uh, to, the, to the one who's a believer who's married, listen, you shouldn't have relations anymore with your wife or with your husband because he's not saved. You don't want to get unholy by having sexual relations with your spouse who isn't a believer. They're actually saying this kind of stuff. And then they were, they were, they were, they were taking it a step further and, and they were saying that even Christian couples where both the man and the woman are believers, they shouldn't have sex anymore. Actually, that's what he deals with, first of all, in the opening verses of this passage. And what they were essentially saying was, to be in a single state, to be in an unmarried state, is actually better. It's, 
it's holier than being in a married state. Now, can you imagine if I were teaching you this kind of stuff every week, week in and week out, can you imagine the can of worms that that would open up in our church? Can you imagine the marital problems that would begin to exist if I were teaching you that kind of garbage week in and week out? The can of worms in Corinth was open and the worms were crawling through the church. And so in chapter 7, Paul gives answers to questions about sexuality, about marriage, about singleness. And as I said, we're just going to come at this from a bird's eye view today. Second thing is this. Paul's response in this letter in, in, to, to the Corinthians is, is what I would say, I would call it raw, raw. Now, by raw, I don't mean crude. I don't mean crude. But what he says here is kind of jarring. It kind of kind of hits you really hard. It's, it's real. It's frank. Paul, Paul doesn't pull punches in any way. He doesn't, he doesn't couch his words with verbal niceties. I mean, look, look at what he says in verse, in verse uh, 9. But if they can't control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, friends, that's not the usual advice you get from your pastor or a spiritual counselor. But there it is. It's, it's kind of raw. It's down to earth, it's real. Because Paul is dealing here with real issues. The next thing I would say is that Paul's response in 1 Corinthians 7 is practical. Now, I don't mean that it's not biblical in that practical is opposed to what is biblical. No, no, it's biblical and practical advice. It's solid godly advice as to how we live in the nitty-gritty of everyday life. It's how we're supposed to live in a sexually charged culture where you have the extremes of sexual license and the other extreme of sexual asceticism. But in all of it, in all of what he says here in 1 Corinthians 7, and we're going to start here in just a moment, Paul's response has one dominant concern. One dominant concern. Now, what I want you to see here is Paul's going to say a lot about marriage, about singleness. He he says some interesting things about divorce. He talks about couples who are mixed in that one is a believer and the other isn't a believer. He talks about the place of sex in marriage. He talks about reasons why people should marry and why they should not marry. But look at verse 35, because verse 35 is really his dominant concern. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. That is the overarching concern of everything that Paul says here in chapter 7. So let's, let's kind of get up into the clouds now, and we're going to soar over this passage, and we're going to touch on some important things that relate to singleness, to marriage, and to sex. The first is this. First is this. Being single and being married is a gift and a calling Being single and being married is a gift and a calling. Notice what he says in verse 7. Verse 7. I wish that all men were as I am. And Paul's, of course, he was single. He's saying, I wish you were single. But each man has his own gift. Literally, the word is charisma. The same thing as the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Each man has his own charisma, his own gift from God. One has this gift the gift of singleness, and another has that gift, the gift of being married. Being single and being married is a gift and a calling from God. The comedian Chris Rock, one of his famous lines is, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? As though those were the only two options. Paul's saying something completely different here. Paul's not a comedian. He's not Chris Rock. He's saying, if you're called to live a single life, that's a gift from God. If you're called to be married, that's a gift from God. Now, for some of us here, we don't don't really think of singleness as a gift. It's not even on our radar. 
One's need to be married and one's capacity not to be married is according to Paul, a gift from God and all of God's gifts are what? They're good. They're good. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him or to her and to which God has called him. To which God has called him. There are gifts that God gives and we are to live according to the calling of that gift. So being single or being married is a gift. Now let's talk about the married life. The married life. Now what Paul says here concerning married life is not exhaustive. Um, It's not um, extensive. There are other passages in the Bible that talk about the married life. For example, Ephesians chapter 5. But Paul does say some very interesting things here. Now remember, what he's saying here about marriage is he's trying to correct this false teaching in the church, this ascetic teaching. So what he's going to say about marriage here applies to that false teaching. Ephesians 5, he's going to address marriage in a completely different way. So we have to take what he's saying here in the context in which he wrote it. And there are a number of truths here. There are four things here in this passage about the married life of believers. There are four things. First of all, marriage is to be in the Lord. In the Lord. Hop over all the way down to verse 39. Verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes but he must belong to the Lord. Now, when Paul uses the word bound here, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, don't think of the word bound as a negative word. This isn't a negative. Paul's not talking of this in a negative way. But he's saying you, you, you have an exclusive relationship as long as your husband is alive or your wife is alive, and then when your spouse dies, you're free to remarry, but how? In what way? The person you marry must belong to the Lord. So this is instruction for believers here. And this is really important because because marriage marriage illustrates the union between Jesus Christ and the church. So for example, if we jump to Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 5, Paul makes it very, very clear that husbands are to love their wives and protect their wives and to give themselves self-sacrificially to their wives just as Jesus Christ does to the church. Conversely, wives are, are to love their husbands and to respect them and to cleave to them and defer to them just as she would to Jesus. And of course, in order for that to be modeled, it it has to be a Christian marriage. It has to be two believers. So Paul, in 2 Corinthians 6, says that we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We shouldn't intentionally go out of our way to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Paul says, "What, what fellowship does light have with darkness? So this is the plain teaching of this passage. To the unmarried and to the single... You're free to marry as long as it is in the Lord. And listen, to to disregard this exhortation, to disobey it, is to court disaster with your spiritual life. The history of Israel and the history of the church, and frankly, even within the history of our own church, there are all kinds of stories that we can tell, examples of individuals who've married outside of the Lord, and they've made shipwreck of their lives. Now, this raises the question, of course, immediately, and that is, well, what about, what about a couple who are married, and then one of them becomes a Christian later, and so now there's sort of an unequal yoke? We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes, but before we go there, let's go to the second point. Not only should marriage be in the Lord, but marriage should be exclusive and binding. Look at verse 2. But since there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own 
husband. Now, now Paul isn't saying that, that, that avoiding sexual immorality is the main reason to get married. He's not saying that. But he is saying it is an important reason. Now, notice the emphasis is on own husband and own wife. Meaning that marriage is, sexually, is a sexually exclusive relationship between one man and one woman for the whole of life together. And this has been reflected in the history of the church since churches have been involved in marrying people. Because in the marriage vows, and they can be worded in different ways, but the marriage vows essentially say for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, Till death do us part, as long as we both shall live. So the marriage vows reflect what is actually here. Why do we have these vows in marriage, in a marriage ceremony? Because it comes out of 1 Corinthians 7. It's based upon the word of God. Now notice here, there's no double standard of faithfulness here. Both are called to total loyalty to one another. There is no such thing as an open marriage. You start talking about open marriage, that's not marriage. Because marriage, by its very nature, is exclusive. And verse 10, it's also binding to the married. Verse 10, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. There, there, there it is. Now, notice, he, he, Paul underscores how important this is in that he's actually quoting Jesus to the married, I give this command, not I. This isn't a command that I made up, Paul says. This command comes from the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. And what's he doing here? He's going back to what Jesus said in, in Mark chapter uh, 6 and in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus goes back to Genesis and he says, in the beginning, it was, it, it was, you know, people just didn't divorce. In the beginning, God said, a man will leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so Paul is actually quoting the teaching of Jesus, and Jesus was quoting Moses. In other words, this is a lifelong partnership, the ideal by the standards of God is one man and one woman for all of life. Uh, look at the last line of verse 11. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Why? Because marriage is exclusive and it's binding. But of course, Paul is a, a, a realist and, and Paul knows that divorce happens and divorce unfortunately happens even in Christian circles. And so he, he writes about that in these verses and, and look at what he says in verse 15. If the unbeliever leaves, so here you have a mixed marriage, one's a believer, the other isn't. And the unbeliever says, I don't wanna live with a believer anymore. If the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances, God has called us to live in peace. He's speaking here about, unfortunately, divorce. And when he says that the believer is not bound, I believe he's saying the believer then is free to remarry. But verse 11 gives us the ideal. And verse 11 is, if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Paul's saying the ideal when marriage breaks down is for reconciliation to happen. And if it can't happen, the ideal then is to remain single. But Paul does give a concession and he allows for remarriage. And in the case of a, an unbeliever deserting a believing wife or a believing Hus, 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 husband, because normally there's some other relationship that gets started. And friends, in these days when, when marriages are breaking down and, 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 and there's such a prevalence of divorce, can I be really frank? We should never be ashamed or silent about this conviction that marriage is exclusive and binding. Third thing Paul says about marriage is that marriage is also 
sanctifying. And you'll see what I mean by that when we get to verse, we'll, look, we'll start at verse 12. Now we're going to answer the question, the question what about when a, a, let's say a woman becomes a believer and her husband doesn't? What happens then? We're going to try to answer that question here. Verse 12. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. In other words, Paul's saying the Lord Jesus didn't write about this. He didn't talk about this, but, but I am. <laughs> if any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Why would Paul even say that? It should be common sense. It's because of these false teachers in the church who are saying, oh, you're a Christian now. You need to divorce your husband. Paul's going at that. He's, he's attacking this. He's saying, no, no. You're still married in the eyes of God. And then verse 14, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, there's a puzzling verse. Now, what, what really is, does Paul mean by, by this? So if I'm a believer and my wife isn't, my wife is automatically sanctified because I am a believer. Does the word sanctified there mean that she is also saved because I'm saved? That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is, there is a sense in which when one is a believer and the other isn't, there is a sanctifying influence. There's a sanctifying power. There's a sanctifying sphere in which that married couple lives. Because one is a believer, there is, there is the presence, in a sense, of the Lord in that marriage in a unique way. And that presence of the Lord, that sanctifying sphere, pertains to the children in that marriage as well. There's a godly, sanctifying influence that the believing wife has on her husband and on her kids, or the believing husband has on his wife, on his kids. Because there's marriage to a believer. Paul is not saying that they are right away converted. I mean, he makes that very, very clear. Verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul's saying this isn't a guarantee that because you have believed, your spouse is going to believe. He's saying that you don't know if that's going to happen. But he is saying there is a godly sanctifying effect that occurs in a marriage relationship where one is a believer and the other is not. The fourth thing Paul says about marriage here is in verses 3 through 6. And in verses three through six, he makes it clear that marriage is both sexual and spiritual. Look at what he says in verse three. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband, of course, because the two become what? One flesh. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now the punchline is, is this line in verse five. Do not deprive. That's the point. Don't use sex as a weapon, essentially is what he's saying. Do not deprive your spouse. And that's exactly what's happening in Corinth because of the false teachers. Oh, no, you shouldn't have sex with your husband. No, no, you shouldn't have sex with your wife. And Paul's saying, are you crazy? You don't deprive each other. You see, Paul is actually presenting a very, very balanced view. 
that there's a sexual aspect to marriage and there is a spiritual aspect to marriage. The ascetics are saying, no, it's just spiritual. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. There is a sexual element here. Now, let's just make a couple of observations from these verses. First of all, he makes it clear that sex in marriage is not to be centered in self, but in the other. Do not deprive your wife. Do not deprive your husband. See, it's, it's, it's a concern for the other. That sex isn't all about my personal gratification. But sex is more than that. It's about ministering to the needs of my spouse. It's not a what's in it for me, but how can I serve my partner sexually? Another observation. It's pretty clear he's encouraging sexual intimacy. You can't get around that. Don't deprive each other, he's saying. It's also clear that Paul is not disgusted with sex. And neither should we be. It's also clear that he's saying don't deprive each other because he understands that, 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 that the sexual, sexual intimacy deepens the unity of a man and a woman. Another thing I would say is he, he, he doesn't restrict sexual activity to just having a child, which is probably what, what the ascetics were saying. Yeah, well, in order to have a child, of course, you need to do it, but most of the time you shouldn't. Paul's going after that here. And of course, later on in the passage, he mentions kids. And so it's pretty clear that sex is not just for procreation, but that there is a recreation aspect to it. And the next observation I would make is he's advocating regular and, enthousi- and a regular and enthusiastic sex life. So there's the sexual side to marriage, but then there's a the spiritual side too. And Paul says, he says, there's going to be times where he says, he says, mutual consent, you're going to abstain from relations. Why? So that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now, in saying that immediately, Paul is elevating prayer in married life. Listen, is your married life more about the sexual side or more about the spiritual side? This is an important thing because, because when Paul starts talking about prayer here, what's he saying? That, that, that the unity of a husband and wife is maintained not just by sexual relations, but by spiritual intercourse as well. Where you're coming together in prayer and you're devoting yourselves to prayer. So, so, so what aspect does prayer have in your married life? We're really getting down to the rubber hitting the road, the road here. And this is a problem in so many marriages today where there's so much focus on other things but not on the spiritual. Men, we need to be praying with our wives. We need to be devoting periods of time. He's talking about not just, you know, prayer before a meal or prayer before you go to bed at night or prayer when you get up in the morning. But he's saying, devote yourselves to prayer. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. And for a time, there's periods of time where you should take spiritual retreats together. But then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there's Paul's points on married life. Now let's talk about unmarried life for a few minutes. Unmarried life. Unmarried life, this is an important topic for a number of reasons. The single life. First of all, in the history of the church, there have been periods of time where the single state has been considered more holy than the married state. Now, we know this through the history of the church. Uh, We're sort of very far removed from that period of time, but this goes right back into the days of the early church. There are examples of this, but particularly in the Middle Ages, the the single state became the the most holy state, and people who were married were settling for second best. That's just a part of the history of the church. Today, secondly, there is a stigma about being single. It's as though if you're single, there's something wrong with you. 
It's like, like you've got some kind of a disease. The third thing I wanted to say, and why this is such an important thing to talk, to talk about, is for the first time in the history of our nation, the majority of adult Canadians are single and not married. In the year 2011, 51% of Canadians were married. Adult Canadians. Now you might say, okay, that sounds pretty high. In 1960, that number was 72%. Cohabiting with each other, of course, has skyrocketed and it is at an all-time high. And people are getting married later in life. Average age right now, somewhere between 28 to 29 years of age. Very different from 100 years ago when sometimes it was 17, 18, or 19 years of age. So what do we have to say, or what does Paul have to say here about the single life? First of all, being single is a call to celibacy. It is a call to abstinence from sex. Now that is implied throughout the passage here when Paul says, I want you to be as I am. Paul was a celibate man. And he's encouraging Christians to live the same way. In other words, being single as a calling from God does not open the door for you to engage in sexual license, to be promiscuous in your behavior. Being called to be single is a gift and a calling from God. Number two, being single can be lovely. I say that because of what Paul says in verse eight. To the unmarried, he says in verse eight, and to the widows, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Now the word good here is the word lovely. It is lovely for them to stay unmarried as I am. Being single can be lovely, is what Paul is saying. Now we think, we think because we've, we've, we've grown up and we live in a society where people are terrified of loneliness and bombarded constantly by sexual imagery, that being unmarried is an unattractive thing. It's not ideal. You have to have someone on your arm all the time in order to be lovely. But Paul does not agree with this. And in verse 7 again, he says that this is a gift, and he says, I wish you were as I am. One of the, the, one of the interesting but not well-known facts about Princess Diana, the late Princess Diana, was the relationship she had with Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Now we know that Diana was an incredibly beautiful and fashionable woman, but in her writing, she spoke quite highly, she wrote quite highly of how she was attracted to Mother Teresa's beauty. Despite the costliness of the sacrifice that Mother Teresa engaged in with her life, Diana refers to her as a deeply attractive woman because she saw in Mother Teresa a beauty all of its own. A small Albanian Catholic nun ministering to the dying on the streets of Calcutta, India. Listen, if God calls you to singleness, He is calling you to something that is beautiful. Paul was not married, and he wished that others would be just like him, not because he wanted people to share in his misery, but to share in the blessing that he knew. And Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 19, where he talked about individuals who were willing to forgo marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. And that is a very lovely and beautiful thing. The next thing is that being single can be fulfilling, fulfilling. 
We often think that we cannot be fully human and fully alive unless we are married. But some of the greatest and most fulfilled individuals in the world have lived their lives as singles. John the baptizer is one of them. Are you prepared to say that his life was not fulfilled? What about the Apostle Paul himself? And what about our Lord Jesus? You know, there are some wacko wingnut weirdos out there who've written pseudo-scholarly papers that try in vain to prove that Jesus was married. They're all idiots. He wasn't. He wasn't. He was single. And he was complete and he was fulfilled. And he was a loving person. And many Christians have remained unmarried and have been very fulfilled. Interestingly, in my wife's life, in Andrea's life, she had an aunt on her mother's side who was single right to the day she died. And an uncle, her uncle Bert, who was single too. Her uncle Bert was a very dedicated follower of the Lord. He had a number of opportunities to be married and he never took advantage of the opportunity to do so but he dedicated himself to his work as a businessman. And what he did was he, he, he was so committed to the Lord in all the businesses that he was involved in, and there were several, and he would buy large plots of land, hundreds and hundreds of acres of land, and he would build subdivisions there, and then he would dedicate a certain area for a church, and he'd build a church there. And the Associated Gospel Assemblies of Jamaica, a denomination there, 40 churches were started by my wife's Uncle Bert because he was wholly committed to the Lord and to his service as a single man. He was enabled to serve God with undivided devotion. He was not a full-time pastor. He was a full-time businessman. But in his singleness, he did everything to the glory of of God. Singleness was not negative for Paul. It was positive because of his desire to serve. Number four, being single can be liberating. Now, there might be some married men who are going to say amen to that, but um, don't because that would not be the appropriate thing to say. Look at verse 28. If you do marry, you've not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Can you relate to that as a married person? And Paul says, and I want to spare you this. Now go down to verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. So Paul basically gives two dimensions to this idea of liberation. First of all, he says, if you're not married, there is a greater freedom to serve the Lord. And secondly, if you're not married... There is a freedom that you have from distraction in life. And these strong advantages to a single life need to be weighed. And we need to be frank about this because most of us have never given any thought to being single our whole lives. For most of us here, it's not even on our radar. And if you're a parent, you've probably never spoken to your children about this unique calling that God may have for them. Again, I go back to my wife and my father, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law had actually spoken to my wife on a number of occasions about perhaps God was calling her to be a single woman. And they were encouraging her to be open to marriage, but also to be open to being single. Of course, she met me and everything changed. Listen, we should not assume that marriage is the right thing for all of us. It may be. It may not be, but God has a plan for us, and we must be willing to accept that plan. Now, I want to close by saying a few more things here. We need to determine our own calling. So how then can we discern whether we are called to a single life or to a married life? 
And the questions we're gonna think about now, this, this question of, of whether we're called to be single or called to be married may not be relevant if we're already married because we are to remain in the state we're in, but it is possible that we may lose our spouse and become widowed at some point in time. So it is a relevant question for all of us. Now, I can't answer um, in a dogmatic way what the will of God for you is, but I think in this passage, there are a number of considerations that Paul gives us, things that we need to consider as we reflect on whether we are called to be single or called to be married. The first one is this, we must consider usefulness, usefulness. Now, Paul talks about that in verses 32 through 34. He talks about being useful for the Lord. So we need to ask ourselves, could I be equally useful to the Lord if married? Or would it inevitably curtail my usefulness to him? This is a consideration that needs to be carefully weighed. The quantity of time available for involvement in Christian service may be reduced once I'm married, but its quality may be enhanced. So we need to consider usefulness. Secondly, we need to consider distraction. And we just looked at those verses about pleasing your husband, pleasing your wife, or pleasing the Lord. Interesting, in in, in this latest movie that came out that Jesus Revolution, I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's a a wonderful trip back to the late 60s and early 70s for me and my Christian walk at that time. But there's, it happens twice in the the movie where where, um, this guy and this girl who end up getting getting married, but um, as as he proposes to her, he kind of puts into the proposal, if you get in the way of me serving and loving God, then this is off. And, and it's, it's a funny moment, and that might seem kind of harsh, but actually it's good. Because there is a distraction when we get married. And, and whether we are single or whether we are married, we have to come to terms with this issue as believers. Am I going to allow my husband to distract me from my sincere devotion to the Lord? Am I going to allow my wife to distract me from my sincere devotion to the Lord. We also consider self-control, which is what Paul talks about in verse, verse nine, where he says it, it, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so we need to consider who we are. We need to consider the desires that we have within our bodies, and we need to make careful decisions based on that. And then we need to also consider the time in which we live. And Paul talks about that. He talks about that. Look at verse, um, go back to verse 26. Verse 26. Because of the present crisis, he writes, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. Go over to verse 29. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short, or the time is critical, is what he's saying. And what is Paul getting at here? He's saying you need to think about whether you're going to be married or whether you're going to be single because of the age in which we live. Jesus has come. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended to the Father. And and in, in light of this, everything in life has changed. We are now living in the final days. This present age in which we live is now overlapped with the age to come which means that the, the world needs to be put in its proper place. We live between the first and the second coming of Christ, and, and living in this gap period of time should influence how we behave and the decisions that we make. Verse 31, last line, for, the, for this world in its present form is passing away. It's passing away. I want to leave you with just three fast 
take, 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 takeaways at this point in time. I think this message has probably generated more questions than any other message I've ever preached here at West Highland. And I'm sure that this will be healthy for our community groups as we meet this week to talk about this message. But here's the final three things I would say from this passage. Number one, we all need to accept the gift that God has given to us. Accept the gift that God has given to us. Verse 17, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. Don't try to change your calling. Number two, we need to maintain a future orientation. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to be a people of the future. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 contemplates this, where Paul says, now we look through a glass darkly. In other words, in this present age, we're, we're looking, and, but, it's, but it's clouded glass. It's like looking through a bottle of Coke and trying to get a clear image. There's a poor reflection. Our sight is impeded. But when the future arrives, when Christ comes, we're going to see him face to face. Our future is not here in this present age. And remember that even marriage is time-bound. Because Jesus said at the resurrection there will be no marriage or giving in marriage. Marriage is for this life only. So our attitudes to this world must be informed and shaped by the hope of a glory-filled future. Look at verse 29. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none as though they had none. Those who mourn, as though they did not. Those who are happy, as though they were not. Those who buy, as if the things were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world, as if not engrossed in them, for the world is passing away. Paul is not saying here that if you're married, you should disregard your wife and live as though she doesn't exist. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying here is we should live as though None of the things that we hold to and have in this life are everything because they're not. They're not ultimate. They're temporary in nature and the world and everything in it is passing away. So finally, number three, we should strive for undevoted devotion to the Lord. Would you stand, please? Lord, take these words, I pray, this passage of your word, the explanation given, and stir in our hearts the appropriate application by the Holy Spirit. And may our times together in our smaller groups this week be times of wonderful discussion that gets generated around these truths so that in the end we would all live with undivided devotion to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May God grant to us all an undivided devotion to the Lord Jesus, whether we're single, whether we're married. May we all be granted grace to accept our lot in life and to remain as we are right now and to live our lives fully to his glory as we continue to fix our eyes on the one who is coming for us. Even Jesus our Lord, to him be glory and praise forever. Amen.